Uh, well, first of all, welcome everybody to the Rise of Virtual CISO. I'm Greg Schaefer. I am the principal and founder of a small consulting company in Franklin, Tennessee called VCISO Services for obvious reasons. Uh, we provide uh, chief information security officer services for small and mid-sized businesses who can't really afford nor need any full-time CISO. And that's what we're going to talk about today is a virtual CISO. Are there any virtual CISOs in here? Just real CISOs. Just real CISOs. Yeah. I, okay. Gotcha. I'd like to become virtual. <laughs> okay. So a couple that are interested in becoming a virtual CISO. Um, good. I don't really have much of a structure to this outside of like, there is a structure, but free form questions back and forth uh, will, will, will work very well. This is a little more about why we're here. Basically, us as CISOs, we price ourselves out of the small and mid-sized business market. Uh, you, you can look at salary figures from a variety of sources, but the real honest, bottom line, bare bones truth is that you can't get a decent CISO with any sort of experience for under six figures, and that's not even close. So small and mid-sized businesses really don't require one. And this field of the virtual CISO really has taken off over the last, I don't know, probably two or three years. It's, it's, I've seen several studies that, well, maybe it's more opinions than studies, that predict that most small businesses will employ or consult a virtual CISO in the next uh, five, five to 10 years. So, good field. I always like to do a little bit about me first so that you understand my context because first of all, yes, I've been a real CISO as opposed to a virtual one beforehand. Uh, this picture was taken when I was, the morning of my deployment tool was called Desert Shield at the time, and I had been working in IT and networking for about six months at the university where, where I was going, the University of Buffalo. So to give you an idea about how long I've been doing this, it's been a long time. Desert Storm, Desert Shield was it's closing in on 30 years now. I started out in networking and migrated into security as my career progressed, which a lot of folks... That's where CISOs really come from a lot, uh, from the IT side. Some come from the business side. I was the um, Chief Information Security Officer equivalent, if you will, for Middle Tennessee State University uh, about a decade or two ago. Uh, th this is the largest um, undergraduate institution in the state of Tennessee. And then from there, I became Metro National's first Chief Information Security Officer. And then after that was CISO for a bank called First Bank. I believe we have a branch down here. And then about two years ago, I went off on my own. Could have retired as a CISO, and not anytime soon. I'm not quite that one. Um, although sometimes retiring at 54 sounds really good. But that's my background. So just to give you an idea, I've done the corporate CISO. I, I understand it. I, I have several different areas, and now. As a virtual CISO, I work in many different verticals, so myself and my team. So we really gotta talk about what a Chief Information Security Officer is first. Now this is probably all just a review for everybody here. Uh, the first CISO, Steve Katz, I believe in 94, for Citibank, Citicorp. Uh, that was a designed as a risk uh, position, if I remember correctly. And really, that's where the Chief Information Security Officer should fall. But unfortunately, the term CISO is really kind of blended to mean a whole lot of different things. First of all, the one thing I always like to say is that if you don't report to the board or the CEO, 
or like the audit committee, then you're achieving nothing. So that C really is kind of misleading. Um, how, how many CISOs are there? How many CISOs report to the CEO or board? Okay, so, so the term CISO really has evolved to mean more along the lines of the, uh, the most senior information security executive within an organization. That's the way I look at CISO. Uh, you have to have a mix of technical and business skills. Technical for obvious reasons, because you're acting as a translator to the board and to the CEO, to the C-suite, to the business leaders and the business unit managers and so forth. So you, you, you need to have both the background firmly rooted in the techie side, and you also need to have good business sense, because if you go and you talk to a, uh, a CEO about the number of vulnerabilities that you patched that month, yeah, I mean, what, what does it mean? That you're not really talking in terms that they understand. So you gotta equate it to what it does as far as the business goes, and that's where we get into like risk assessments and those sorts of things. Um, and the other thing too is the location within the organization, we just talked about it briefly beforehand, but this is rather important. Uh, unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because the CISO typically nowadays uh, tends to report um, still more often than not to the CIO. And I don't believe that the CISO should fall within IT for reasons we'll talk about just a moment. But you can have it report to the CEO, which is rather rare, the CFO, which is not as rare, particularly if it's a public company and you have your um, Sarbanes-Oxley requirements. So the, suddenly, once you become a public company, the CFO becomes much more security aware. I went through this with First Bank when we went public um, about two years into my tenure. Chief Risk Officer, that's actually who I reported up to over at First Bank. So various places. Now, all this is important to set the stage because there's gonna be differences between what a CISO and a VCSO does and where they sit. Purpose of the CISO is to manage risk. Notice I don't say that the purpose of the CISO is to take on risk. Now, this is the same thing with regards to the virtual CISO, but even a little bit less so mentioned in a moment. Uh, three lines of defense. How many are familiar with the term three lines of defense? Okay, I figured that CISO would, would, would understand this. So three lines of defense, first line would be operational management, so that's where IT would fall. So when, when you're working on, say, firewall rules and actually like reviewing, or rather uh, configuring systems, that's what, a, that's what a, a first line would be. The second line is risk management, and that's where the chief information security officer should fit, and the virtual CISO. Um, because that's what we do. We manage risk, we inform uh, the senior leadership on risk, and we recommend changes to the program, but we don't implement controls more often than not. Sometimes as a CISO you do, as a virtual CISO it's very rare. Then um, segregation of duties, this kind of dovetails with the first line and second line, because you wanna make sure that you're not crossing between those lines. Third line, of course, being audit. I didn't mention that beforehand. So an audit makes sure that first and second lines stay honest and they're doing what they're supposed to do. Just to review, I'm sure you're all familiar with this and more alphabet soup, but CISO is more or less responsible for ensuring that not only are the controls within these uh, standards and regulations, depending upon your industry, of course, not only that you're meeting those, uh, but that you're also implementing them properly and if there are any gaps that you determine what you need to do in order to fill those gaps. So uh, 
I've worked with all of these right now, including it's kind of interesting that the GDPR has really become a big deal here. Uh, we just finished a GDPR assessment for a firm uh, in Tennessee, actually. And uh, it, it's, you're seeing more United States companies that are more concerned about that because of their potential to do business with Europe. So uh, that's, I, I point that out because when we're talking about the rise of the virtual CISO, you're seeing a lot more small companies now that have yet this, this new gorilla in the room in order to, to have to deal with. So small and mid-sized businesses, the way I like to define a small and mid-sized business is along the lines of, and this kind of varies, but less than 200 people, maybe more than 30, less than 200 people, um, and you know, really 30 to 50 million in revenue, and that can vary. Most of our clients are um, fall within that range. The largest that we've ever had was 1,400, and that was more of an interim CISO type deal, which is something that we don't typically do. Um, but uh, and we talked about the rest of this too, the reasons for needing a virtual CISO. So, the meat and bones now of this. We've talked about what a CISO is. First of all, are there any questions with regards to what a CISO does? Just off the bat. Senior Security Executive Risk Manager. A virtual CISO, first and foremost, is a consultant. So if you're a consultant, you're not an officer of the company. You don't assume responsibilities for implementation, but you do have, of course, the responsibility to do your job effectively and correctly. It's also part-time. Now, I'm gonna step back for a moment. We've talked a little bit about a couple of different engagements that we're doing, that we've done in the past. And I mentioned something about interim CISO. I don't really see the virtual CISO as an interim CISO role. Some will have differing opinions about that. But typically, a virtual CISO is one that works part-time, usually has anywhere between three and five clients at any given time. Uh, so we're talking between 10 and 30 hours per month, 10 and 40 hours per month is more or less on average. 10 is, is you can't really go below, below 10 because just like a CISO, a virtual CISO needs to establish the relationship within the, um, better not stand in front of the speakers right here or somewhere, I'm getting feedback. Um, you need to establish the relationship with your clients and with your business, um, with the business owners because the virtual CISO's greatest tool is the same as the CISO's, and that is relationships. Um, you need to have experience as a CISO. Now, this is where I kind of get off on a little bit of a tangent, and I don't mean this to sound like I'm bashing managed security service providers, but unfortunately, there are many MSSPs that are offering now virtual CISO service, but they're not providing that, C that service with an actual CISO. Somebody who's actually been in the trenches beforehand and it's sort of like you're, you're taking driving lessons from somebody who has their learners coming in a way, because the virtual CISO then is learning as they're going. So you have to have experience as a CISO and not be just an IT security director or a manager, because again, information security is much larger than IT security. Um, it's, it's, it's truly is a business function. So I always caution folks, and that, and that kind of sounds a little salesy because we provide virtual CISO services obviously, um, but I don't mean it that way. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I started this company two years ago was because, quite honestly, I was, I don't know if I want to say sick and tired, but um, just seeing that there, there are so many instances where small and mid-sized businesses need to have 
access to what I have up here in my almost 30 years of doing this stuff, but they can't afford it. So again, I could have retired in the corporate world, but this has been a calling for me. And then finally, the virtual CISO, well, the V means virtual, it works remotely. Um, for, that keeps costs down and provides a lot more flexibility. I will typically work with, well, between my clients and my consultants' clients, I can work with 10 clients in a day, uh, back and forth in meetings and so forth. Um, now, a fractional CISO, I see as someone who is more on site part-time. You see fractional CFOs are pretty common. You don't see fractional CISOs right now because, quite honestly, the virtual or fractional CISO market is still just, it's in the infancy right now. It's really starting to grow. Um, but you're going to see that more often, and in that case, then I can see that the fractional side will start growing. But that's probably going to command more um, capital, more resources from the clients, because if you're on site, that's going to cost a little bit more because you don't have the flexibility to work with different clients throughout the day. So now we're going to get into the, how a virtual CSA can help small and mid-sized businesses. But before going there, any questions thus far? Do you normally charge like a uh, fixed amount or an hourly rate? That's a good question. Um, well, so first of all, our services, they, they fall into basically two buckets. One would be the virtual CSA ongoing, um, at least a six-month engagement and at least 10 hours a month. And that one, we charge an hourly rate, but it's a flat, it's actually a flat book rate per month up to a certain amount of hours. And if we say 10 and we end up putting in 15 one month, that's not gonna kill it. We don't, it's just an approximate. The second one is if we do projects like risk assessment, I mentioned the GDPR assessment just recently. Um, that one, we will also quote in an hourly rate, but we'll only go for actual hours done. So we'll do it, we'll not exceed them. And if we exceed the number of hours internally, we'll end shame on us. So, so you provide metrics for uh, productivity. You know, that's huh? You got good questions. Um, it depends upon the client what they want. Uh, and for example, if the GDPR one is fresh in my mind, uh, there wasn't so much that we could provide metrics for the risk assessment, but we could provide information as far as the real cost. So we did a um, quantitative risk assessment using, anybody familiar with FAIR? FAIR, uh, Factor Analysis of Information Risk. Uh, if, if you're into the risk side of information security, check it out. It is, it is a very up, good and up and coming standard. Um, but then as far as other metrics performance wise, well, we'll look at some of the same metrics that you'll see in organizations like number of um, vulnerabilities, number of, uh, uh, you know, vulnerabilities patched, the uh, incidents that have happened, but we track these and we summarize these in a manner which is consumable by the board. The same thing you do as a CISO in, in the real world. But if, again, when it comes to accountability, if there's a problem where something isn't patched, well, that's actually on the client side. That's their IT issue. Uh, we can only advise. Governance, we typically will fall within the IT side are the ones that for the most part will engage us first. Because usually with small companies, they're still, they don't have a, um, a, a mature risk management framework at that point in time. Uh, but we can also help with the governance on the other side to, of, the, of the client to be able to provide that segregation of duties. We see that a lot, particularly in finance, where more so auditors are saying that you can't have IT be in charge of information security. I mean, everybody understands why, right? There's that conflict of interest. I mean, and usually security just 
doesn't win out. But the IT and the InfoSec senior folks need to be best, best friends. So, um, and then of course compliance. I, 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 we all have heard compliance doesn't equal security, but compliance is, a, is an important component of security. And that's actually, as we've seen in the corporate world over the last decade or so, that's now also a big push for small mid-sized businesses to come and try to engage somebody to help because they're getting questions like, um, we need to become PCI compliant. We don't know what that means. We, we need to undergo a SOC 2 audit and I have no idea what, is there a difference between a SOC 2 type 1 and a SOC 1 type 2? Yeah, there's a big difference. Um, so those sorts of things are the types of um, issues that get us in the door and then we provide value that we just maintain that relationship. In the short period of time that I've been doing this, we have never lost a client um, for, for the virtual CISO services. Um, of course, the project ones, they come and go. Uh, and unfortunately, I think that's about to change because one of our clients uh, just recently uh, was acquired by another client who does have a CISO. So that's, can you justify business-wise keeping a virtual CISO when you have a CISO? So I don't think that that's gonna go. It depends upon how long the um, conversion gap and maturity assessments, already went over that with the GDPR. It, this is answering the question for the business, what is it that they don't know? And you're seeing a lot more now where folks will be uh, reading about the latest and greatest breach out there. I don't know, what is what is the last one, right? There was a... Okay, yeah, I haven't either, but it seems like it's just daily, and, and usually one of them will ping um, a CEO or top top executive, hey, are we secure? I was actually asked that the first time that I started working at First Bank. Um, went out to lunch, I think my second day, with the risk director and the, and the president of the bank, and so we're eating lunch, and, you know, and, and the new risk manager as well, too. And so the CEO, he asked me, he says, Greg, are we secure? And I looked at him straight in the eye, and I said, yes, sir! And it was the stupidest, the worst answer that I could actually, but you know, you put on the spot and you feel kind of like you got to, well, later that day, I went to his office and clarified it. It's like, so I haven't seen any big gaps yet. I've only been here two days, but uh, I'm sure that there are issues and we'll address them as the time comes. Uh, and of course, risk assessments and risk treatment. Um, again, the virtual CISO, even more so in, in this world as opposed to the CISO, uh, usually doesn't do as much with regards to risk treatment because that's gonna fall in the responsibility of other areas. So um, if there's a problem with a, a, a project manager, for example, the PMO would handle that. If there's a problem with the, um, something with training, usually that falls underneath HR. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a significant role in advising, consulting. Remember, we're consultants. We're, at the end of the day, we're, we're not, we, we act on behalf of the company, but we're not company officers. say you're the agent of? Who, whose authority are you acting under under your typical engagements? I'm acting under the authority of the company. Um, I have the, in most engagements, myself and my consultants will have the CISO title, so it looks good on it. But um, as Is far as having- the owner, CEO bringing you in? Who's your typical Typically, it is more of the technical officer. So the CTO or the CIO, um, that begins it, but um, that is always approved and in consulted, consulted with the, the CTO. 
I haven't seen a, a significant, I haven't seen that vary at all. So, um, but, but there are differences. I mean, this one that's about to um, possibly go away, uh, we, I, I'm, I'm the named Chief Information Security Officer and I report to the CEO. Well, the CEO just retired on Friday. So it's part, part of the, part of the uh, um, acquisition. So I'm not really sure where that is. Um, so we direct IT on controls again. So we'll do firewall rule reviews. We'll do that all day. Um, that's just a saying. I don't actually want to sit and do firewall rule reviews all day. It'd be kind of tedious. But we'll review on a, um, at least an annual basis, depending upon what the customer wants. Sometimes it's as frequent as quarterly, and we'll be consulting whenever there's change management. We have to sign off on the change. Um, but we're not going to implement. And again, for two reasons. I don't think the CISO should implement it, or the CISO staff should implement that either. I think that we need to maintain those two uh, divisions. Business continuity, disaster recovery. Next week I'm doing a, I think it's two tabletop exercises next week, one with a firm in, in New York City and one with a firm, uh, where are they located? Seattle. So, um, and then training as well too. So even though the training aspect might fall underneath the responsibility of HR, We'll um, manage it, we'll, whether we do it in person, or which is very rare. Um, I've done training once in person for a client. So even though it's virtual, every now and then, I have gone on site to support if, if it's a modular exam, what have you. But most of the time, we use products, mainly Know Before. Um, anybody familiar with Know Before? If you're in the banking industry, you probably are. Um, and we'll, we'll leverage that, track those metrics, and report them to the board as well, too. SOC 2 audit support. This is, again, a big one where, where, where companies, I'm actually so proud of this. This is, this is probably one of my best, the smallest client, the, almost the, the third oldest client I've had. And this is, I guess, going on about a little more than two years. Um, they have grown from being about 22 employees to about 32 right now. And they produce a FinTech piece of software. Um, but their customers have been asking for a SOC 2 audit, and their competitor um, actually has been SOC 2 certified. So that drove them to engage an audit firm. We were already providing virtual CISO services for them. I had been their CISO for over a year. Um, but we went through the SOC 2 Type 1, just finished that in March. And it's just amazing to see how far this has grown. This is one of the things that drives me doing this, to see the, the, the bringing up and the maturing of small businesses. And now we're in the middle of the SOC 2 type 2. So that's, that audit period is for, um, I think we're doing six months initially, but um, so it's underway right now. And that gets down to client company as well too. Another one we do is vendor management. How many of you either send out or have to respond or both to security questionnaires? How many of you who rose your hand, who put your hand up, how many of you like doing that? Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of tedious because there's really no standard. I mean, I know you got the SIG and the SIG light and all that, but how many folks actually use it? And then sometimes they'll say it's a SIG light, but it's kind of like an altered SIG light, so you can't like really cut and copy and paste from another SIG light. Uh, so that gets to be a little bit tedious. But on the other hand, we also do the, the other side of vendor management where we vet the vendors, we'll do the reviews of their controls, their SOC 2 audits, and so, you know, all that sort of stuff. That's a big thing out there as well. Um, so now we're going to move into 
if you're going to look for a virtual CISO, what are some of the things that you need to think about up front when you're going to be engaging them? The first one, and I think the most important is you need to vet them. Uh, you, you need to verify, going back again to the understanding that they've done this in the real world before. They're not using your company as a training ground or what have you. Now, as a caveat to that, um, one of my consultants, and I expect this to, to increase as time goes on, uh, one, of, one of my consultants is not has never been a CISO, but has deep risk management experience. So you know, on a project that we're working on now, we're just starting this engagement with a firm, um, I think in the next two weeks is our kickoff. Um, I still believe the project manager, but it affords me the opportunity to mentor someone else who perhaps wants to come into this space. So that would be the caveat. If you have someone who says that they've never been a CISO before, but has been a virtual CISO for a company that employs CISOs, then that can go a long way. Um, you, of course, with any project or, I mean, even a virtual CISO engagement is a project, we typically, uh, our, our contracts are usually, uh, we start at six months, nothing, nothing lower than that, um, for the reasons I mentioned before. And uh, we uh, tend to uh, renew on a month-by-month -month basis. It depends upon the, uh, the client. But um, you need to scope that out at first. So uh, what is the virtual CISO going to be responsible for and what are they not going to be responsible for? And I'll tell you right now, um, I, have, I have said no to several client opportunities when it became clear that the only reason why the client was looking for a virtual CISO was to check some sort of compliance box. Now, I know I mentioned before that, okay, that sometimes gets the foot in the door and gets the company um, working towards a security program, but I need to see that up front. Um, what are your goals? Do you, do, you, do, you, do you want to grow your security program? And if so, why? And if I get a response along the lines of, well, we want to become PCI compliant because our customers need it, and we just want to make sure that the auditors are fine with what we do, I'm like, well, but what about like the reasons behind that? Um, so I, I guess you can say that I've lost a significant amount of business opportunities uh, because of that and, and other reasons that I will just not, if it doesn't align with our mission and our goal, then I won't, I won't engage. And besides, there's plenty of folks out there that will do that for compliance purposes. That's not our thing. Um, and then goals and immediate needs. Now this is where compliance would come into play. So it's like, okay, what do you need to have done in the next 30 days, 90 days? Do you have an audit coming up? Um, the banking world, the, the exams are usually annual or some sort of period. Um, do, do you need to prepare for that? Did you have a, uh, a bad uh, exam report um, or, or what have you? Are you just looking to separate the duties? Well, okay, there's that just again. How about if you separate the duties, we're gonna help build your program. Oh, that's great, we do that too. Yeah, that's, that's what we do. So you need to get all this uh, in place. This is the same as engaging like any other type of firm, really. You need to have that, make sure that the firm provides a nice statement of work that lays out exactly what you need. And, and, and don't have the firm tell you what they should be doing. You tell the firm what, what, what you need. And then the, the virtual CISO will then help to drag out more and more what they can do to help build the program. Uh, usually when we start, again, just like an audit, we'll start with an initial request list. How many have actually, how many have been through the audit process, an IT or information security audit process? 
So you kind of know how the cadence is. It starts off with you get somebody who does know, know nothing about your company. So they need to go from knowing nothing to understanding your company well enough, usually within a three month period, to be able to render an opinion and find um, gaps and to help the company. So how do we start that? We start that with the initial request list, and, and ours is quite long because we do security and privacy. Um, virtual CISO, uh, you see coming up really just now more often as also being um, the uh, data protection officer with regards to the, to the GDPR. So this is not a conversation about the similarities and differences between security and privacy, but there is the overlaps and um, I think you're seeing a merge of that. I think you're seeing that possibly in the real world as well, too. Well, I shouldn't say real world, the corporate world. Uh, then the second phase, typically, whenever we have an engagement, is that we'll, we'll uh, um, interview the subject matter experts, the ones that we and the company both determine are the ones that are important here. I've had people ask me on initial, well, why do you want to interview marketing? And I'm like, well, because they're subject matter experts that pertains to information security. Well, how on earth could marketing pertain to information security? Or if you have an incident, who's going to be your mouthpiece? You do have that, right? You have it in writing that this, this one person, this one person only is going to be the, um, the communications uh, folks there. So usually that in, falls in the marketing part, right? Well, it, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's the CEO and you just don't think it's like, well, that's okay. Our marketing department doesn't handle that CEO there. That's fine. We just need to make sure it's covered. We never get everything right on the first try as far as asking, because we don't know the company's culture. We don't know the company's, uh, I mean, one of the first things that we request on the initial request list, in addition to policies and vulnerability assessment, pen tests, training, all that stuff is also the organization chart, so that we can start to figure out where to go. So I would expect the small firms you engaged in the size to have probably pretty significant capability gaps and you would uncover Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a, there's the problem of people having multiple responsibilities, and you can only do so much. And and you know, I mentioned the size of a business. That is that is usually the hundred to two hundred range is where you really start to see a company. If they're going to take off, they start to grow, um, and that's where those gaps they become significant. And again, somebody who's not schooled in understanding what a SOC 2 report is, why it's there, what you should be looking for. Um, <laughs> how many are familiar with a SOC 2? I'm gonna guess that probably the majority of the room here has at least read once in their lifetime. Um, so, but a lot of times, probably, I'd say probably nine out of 10 times when I'm asked for, can you provide your firm a SOC 2 report? And I'll provide it, they're all happy with it. They never think to ask about, well, what trust criteria are you looking at? Is it just security, or is it security and privacy, or availability, or how do you handle it then? It's like, if, you, if, you don't, if you're not doing availability on your audit, well, then who handles that? Well, it's because we outsource it to you know, Azure or something like that. Um, and then finally, the assessment. And going through the assessment, depending upon what the assessment is, if, it's, that's, if that's all we're contracted for, that's fine. Um, whether we're assessing against ISO or NIST or GDPR or PCI, uh, we'll, pro we'll provide a, a comprehensive report at the end of that. If we're assessing um, for our purposes, we'll usually choose a framework that is relevant. Most of the time we, we align with the cybersecurity framework that seems to work best. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the cyber resilience review, but we leverage that even though it's a few years old. Um, 
Um, as a virtual CISO, we really need to have internal access, if at all possible. Now, some clients would prefer not to do that, but um, the, the, the ones that we have longer-term engagements for, um, we actually become part of the company. So we have an email address. We typically have access to the intranet. Um, we have a we match their signature. Uh, again, I I currently have um, at least four or five companies that my name is listed on there as the chief information security officer on my email. Um, that's one of the things about being a virtual CISO though that becomes a challenge is that you uh, you don't really want to cross the stream so to speak and like send an email to one client using your other signature, and uh, it it happens but not too often. Um, fortunately, everybody understands that we have multiple clients. You need to um, really establish communications up front. You, you need to understand who you're playing with, who the major players are, who has the answers, because you're not sitting there. You, it is a huge disadvantage to work for a company when you're working remote all the time. Now, and in doing that part-time, it becomes very difficult, but yet you are still part of the company. And then you want to establish a, a meeting cadence. Um, for us, it's either weekly or bi-weekly. And what I mean by that is that we'll form an initial security committee uh, with the important players, usually someone in risk, someone in IT, sometimes someone in legal or privacy, uh, public company, it might be the CFO, but usually not. Usually we, we reserve the, the C-suites for like the quarterly steering committee meeting. But for the weeklies, we just need to touch base, see where we're going with certain initiatives, and um, and again, the communications has to be completely open. We're not we're not an auditor. Um, now, I say that kind of tongue in cheek because I really honestly believe that auditors are your best friends. If you get a good auditor, or in the big end of banking world, if you get a good examiner, um, they will help you uh, because they want to see your organization secure, particularly in banking. I mean, ever. The reason why the FDIC, the NCUA, and the OCC do those exams is because they've got literally skin in the game. You've seen those things saying that the FDIC insures to a quarter million or what have you. So they want to help you. They're not there to ding you. But unfortunately, sometimes um, there's still that culture that you, you, you want to tell the auditor just what the auditor asks because there's that very real risk. I shouldn't say unfortunate. This actually just happens. It's like there's a very real risk that you're gonna kind of spider down a road that you know that the risk is fine, but now you've got to spend an inordinate amount of time trying to convince the auditor it's like this is not really a risk. Um, now on the other hand, we're, we encourage, tell me everything that you did. So if you think there's a concern, as minute as it might be, just let me know. And because uh, we're there to work for you, work with you, we're on your team. And that's really part of my final short thoughts. We are, as a virtual CISO, part of the company's team. We establish that relationship, we work for the team, um, we, we encourage sharing and the relationship aspects. <laughs> now, from my perspective, I didn't put this on the slides, but I did want to spend just a couple of moments just talking about my experiences with virtual CISO as well, too. Um, It was the best career decision that I ever made. I, my only regret is that I didn't do it sooner. And you hear that a lot sometimes when folks uh, go off on their own or enter into 
Okay, so I'm not suggesting that a virtual CISO needs to go ahead and set up their own business, although I think that setting up an LLC is a good idea because it affords you some measure of protection between your personal and your, and your business activities. Um, that was actually my first idea when I set up these CISO services. It was just, I was just setting up an LLC to separate the two. And then I started to get inquiries from folks saying, hey, could you help us on this thing? Okay, yeah, this might end up being a real full-time thing for me. And um, when it came to a point, that I couldn't juggle the two. That's when I decided I was going to pull it. And uh, fortunately, um, it was a very, it was a risk informed decision, uh, but it was a high risk, high reward decision. And for me, thus far, now things can go south, of course, but thus far it has worked out very well. Uh, again, I've been doing it for about um, about two years now, and uh, ended up first working from home. How many work from home in here? All the time or half time? Or? Part time. Part time. See, working from home part time is okay. Working from home full time gets real old real fast. And that really surprised me because I was like, oh, I could just, I love the idea of just like going to work in my pajamas. And unless I have a video meeting, you know, obviously you don't want to get caught that way. The commercial with the guy who sneezes at Ebori Boxers, I love that. Um, the struggle is real. But after that, I got. I decided to go to a co-working space, and so we go there a few days a week, two days a week, typically. And then from there, enjoyed it so much that I ended up renting an office in downtown Franklin now, which is our quote-unquote corporate headquarters. I'm still the only employee. Um, I work with consultants right now. At some point in time, that will probably change as we grow. I'm just there's a lot of um, advantages and disadvantages to making that leap, and uh, I'm just not sure if that's where my path, my calling, my reason for doing this wants to go. But I would encourage, if you're interested in this, um, to at least pursue it. I'm certainly available. Uh, let me put up my contact information for any sort of questions, or um, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'm on Twitter. The company's on Twitter and LinkedIn as well, too. I'd love it if you followed us. Hoping to get to 100 followers for the company. We're at 82 right now. I know that I think there's like 15 in here right now, or 12 in here. It's like more increases to 94. I know why, so thank you. Um, but that's that's essentially my my uh, my talk. Again, this has been more of a free flowing. Wanted to leave a few minutes for questions in case you had any. So are your consultants mostly in Franklin, or are they? No, they're nationwide, and um, some of them, all they do is consult. So they'll work for me, they'll work for themselves, they'll work for another firm. Some of them are, and you see this more often, uh, are actually doing it on the side, which creates a little bit of a challenge because they can only do meetings, like say, during their lunchtime. And occasionally, uh, probably about 35% of the time, a third of the time, they need to uh, vet that with their employer, which I'm fine with as well too. And typically clients that engage virtual so they understand that as well. It's like, Okay, you've got other things going on, um, and they'll work around it as far as needs go. And that's also where I come into play too, where I'm always available. Um, so, probably one of the biggest things is the companies of the size you're talking about. Normally, I see their backup recovery, disaster recovery, is insufficient. Mm -hmm. I agree. It's, it's interesting. I've sat down with a couple of companies, and I look at them, and I go, "Talk about your backup plan." What happens if you come in and your building burns down? What would happen to your 